Recorded live. This show is brought to you by TalkShoe, where anyone can create their own internet talk show. Check it out at talkshoe.com. Good morning or afternoon or evening, depending on where you are listening from. We are worldwide, and welcome once again to IAQ Radio. Today's show is sponsored by John Don Products, where remediation and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. And Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry at ieconnections.com. Today's guests will be environmental health consultant McGregor Pierce and attorney Michael Green. We also have in the studio Cyber Jockey helping out with the uh, callers and emails and my co-host Cliff Slotnick. Good to be here, Joe. Welcome, Cliff. If anyone would like to call in, you can call in live by dialing 724-444-7444. The show ID is 1547. This show is live every Friday at noon Eastern Time, and it's more fun and more interesting if you text us questions or call in. If you want to text a question live, Download the Talk Shoe software and start typing. That's www.talkshoe.com. Okay, today we'd like to start with uh, some review from last week on the trivia answers that we received. Cliff, I'll turn it over to you. Okay, we had um, our quotation last week. was actually, don't look down on anyone unless you're helping them up. And we had a successful uh, answer to that. And we seem to have a trivia expert that seems to call in on a weekly basis, and that's Mark Brenner from Atlantis, or Atlant- yes, Atlantis Waterproofing and Mold Control, LLC. Uh, we do have uh, two trivia questions in play. The one that's originally in play that's known I guess Mark hasn't found the answer to that one yet. It's what is the Latin derivation of the term stachybotrys? What does it mean? And we're going to introduce a new trivia question this week. And I just need to find it. The the microband trivia question this week is a mold inspector found extensive fuzzy white stuff on a cinder block wall. When viewed under a microscope, a crystalline structure was visible. An accredited AIHA lab determined the material not to be biological, but rather chemical. Our question is, what is the chemical nature of what was found? We want to know what it is chemically. Very good. And again, today's trivia question was brought to us by Microbrand Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. All right. Our first guest today is McGregor Pierce, and I'd like to turn it over to Cliff Zlotnick to introduce Mac and uh, get this part of the show rolling. Uh, McGregor Pierce has gained a national reputation for his mold investigation reports. Mac's understanding of building science and how buildings work make him an expert investigator for mold and moisture. He is an environmental health consultant 
who specializes in the field of microbiological indoor air quality problems and has extensive experience in particulates, identifying and collecting molds and other biological contaminants, and in remediation of these problems. Mac, my first question for you this morning is uh, deals with building materials. What is your opinion of building materials used over the last 50 years, and are new buildings more prone to mold than old buildings? I think there's probably several million answers, each building being different than the one, each other one. And what I tell people is that when you buy a new home or building, you're buying a science experiment. There, are no, there is no long-term durability history for these models, and the, the manufacturers and the installers always assure you that it's the best stuff and that they checked it all out. But the fact is that my old 1914 home is built in almost exactly the same manner as 600-year-old homes in Amsterdam or in London and out of the same materials with the same methods. The old guys trained the young guys in an endless stream of production using old-growth forest wood products and stones that were hewn properly, blah, blah. Now everything's so different. All the materials are different. And now we have the energy paradigm that we hadn't faced in the past. Kind of like a child that has to learn to quit soiling its clothes and use the toilet. We have to learn more about conserving energy today. And we haven't necessarily learned our lessons well enough when it comes to putting up our buildings. Because when you increase the energy efficiency of the building, it's quite possible that you reduce its durability. Because the same properties that lose energy in my old house allow my house to dry out. If I were to stuff my walls with insulation without being very cautious, I might compromise the durability of this wonderful old building. You know, I had heard that you, I guess, had a, uh, I guess, kind of related building materials to a children's story. Well, I do I used to use a slide where I'd show the three little pigs merrily dancing around and with the big bad wolf ready to huff and puff and blow their buildings down, and I pointed out that even the laziest and the dumbest of those three little pigs didn't make a paper house. <laughs> but somewhere around the 1940s, 1950s, it was decided in uh, value engineering terms that it would be better to take paper-covered panels of gypsum and fasten them to our wall studs instead of the careful application of, of old-fashioned uh, plaster. Plaster is vastly more expensive and difficult to install. It's a highly skilled trade as opposed to drywalling, which is considered a semi-skilled trade and much less expensive per square foot. But if you're concerned about durability, the Sistine Chapel uh, has some failure on the plaster. The, the frescoes are, are paintings on plaster that Michelangelo specialized in. And these plaster walls and ceilings are often hundreds of years old. And if they don't have water leaks, they can last forever. Whereas when we look to paper material from the 15 and 1600s, unless it's carefully archived, that paper's all vanished. So it's not as durable of a building product. Gotcha. I heard that a term, uh, I guess, that you brought into the English language is wood. Can you tell me what wood is? My friend Wayne Bogan up in Duluth, a carpenter, uh, was the one who actually introduced me to that term back okay. in the 1970s. And I, I have used it and made made that term famous, but it was Wayne who discussed these various wood products. I think he was mostly referring to oriented strand board, where you take small pieces of wood product in a glue or adhesive matrix and, and make that, that kind of golden-colored wall panel we see so often used as exterior sheathing. That's was wood, or the particle board that you see bookshelves made out of is another was wood form. It was wood at one time, but now what is it? 
<laughs> Interesting. Mac, I, um, this is Joe Hughes, and I'd also like to mention quickly that um, our, our technical advisor, Dr. Dietrich Wow, is also on the line with us, and I just wanted to say hello to Dieter and, and make sure he gets a chance to say hello to our listeners. Hello, Dieter, are you yep. there? Yes, I certainly am. I'm back from tennis, and uh, I'm... Dialed in the right number, and I'm here, yes. Great. If you have any questions for Mac, please let us know and, and chime in when you get a chance. Well, I know you two um, recently maybe shared a beverage at uh, summer camp. Is that yes, true? Yes, we did, and I have to have to credit somebody else now that because I use Mac's <laughs> was wood term, and uh, I said Mac did say that, but we learned now it was somebody else. I think we've all stolen that one. Yep. Time to time. <laughs> and it's wonderful. It is true. It is. It is. Okay, uh, Mac, let's let's go back. I've got a couple other questions here. Um, one of them, I guess, that uh, I have a, a, a question on mold remediation and mold remediation guidance documents. And of those available, which do you prefer or rely on and why? And Maybe I could quickly tell the listeners we have EPA, New York City guidelines, IICRC guidelines, now OSHA has guidelines. Which do you prefer? Well, I'm going to beat around the bush on that question. Start off by saying that when Cliff called me on the phone years ago, he'd seen an article I'd published in the Journal of Environmental Health on flooded buildings, and it caught his eye. He thought, this mold is a comer. And Cliff <laughs> sort of introduced me to the cleaning and restoration industry, and uh, I talked to them about mold problems in buildings. I've now seen many of these uh, cleaners leapfrogging over me into becoming great experts themselves, and they've produced all sorts of documents uh, related to cleanup and stuff. I've never been consulted on any of them, and so what I recommend that people read is a book called Food Microbiology. Almost all of the good information on mold has been generated by food biologists who have been studying mold in terms of the decay of foodstuffs for hundreds of years. It costs billions of dollars a year, and the best mycologists and the best mold experts have studied cake and the you know, decay of vegetables and fruits with mold on them. And this building products industry is mostly people who are trying to make a buck, who've smelled the money and have jumped up and volunteered to be the experts. And a lot of these documents, I think, are best faith efforts to address particular problems. But a lot of them wind up being awfully self-serving in terms of hire me, I know about it. And so I'm, I'm skeptical of almost all of them one way or another. The New York City guidelines, if people want me to refer them to something, I'll say, look at that. They've evolved over the years. They've have gotten better, I think. And there's all sorts of mold experts out there. And I say it's a reader beware. You know, the, the, the food people are who I'd recommend. Would, would you agree or disagree that, uh, and I think I maybe just got the answer, answer to this, but that the mold remediation or that uh, mold remediation and cleaning restoration is being driven by self-anointed uh, intra-industry mold experts? Well, what, what, what I recall seeing, when I recall those cleaning and restoration people that Cliff introduced me to when I was talking at those conferences, and they listened with rapt fascination as I <laughs> gave my presentation, and then instead of thinking, I think I'll call that guy, they thought, hell, I can do that, and <laughs> so they jumped right up and, and got into it. I don't claim to be a great expert on it. I've looked at thousands of samples and spent a lot of time with a microscope, and I think that if you're going to have somebody be involved 
in uh, dealing with your microbiological problems, make sure that they actually can use a microscope and do this kind of work themselves. Don't have somebody who used to have a mop pail and a broom, a former janitor, all of a sudden present himself as a scientist or you're looking for trouble. And that's on the investigative side, I, I assume. What about on the remediation side? What, what do you suggest a consumer look for in a contractor that's coming in to remediate their indoor environmental quality problem or their mold problem if it's a mold problem? Go by their house and see if there's a Mercedes 500 brand new parked in their driveway. Look for that big boat. My feeling is that in my area, when people need mold cleanup, there are only a few people I'll refer to because when they're done with the job and I go out and I take my contact plates and my surface samples and do my work to see if there's really any significant residue of mold left, their jobs pass with flying colors because they use proper practices. And I think the SS520 guidelines, many of the different guidelines on there are excellent best practice guidelines, but it all just has to be taken with a grain of salt. There's a lot of panic attached to mold, and people who, you know, when you garden, when you disturb soil, when you turn over the compost pile, you're getting a mold exposure then as well, and let's have a common sense attitude. You know, there's, 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 it's such a complicated, enormous subject. If you ask me something specific, I'll give you a specific answer, but, you know, what's the best thing to do? That's caveat emptor, you know, the, the Cleaning and restoration is a skilled art. I'm not trying to demean the profession. These guys, the guys that are good really are. And getting stuff properly cleaned and dried, getting stuff gutted properly. Basically, when we have a moldy property, what we're concerned about is that we don't wind up spewing clouds of these easily airborne spores all through the property while we're trying to clean up a local mold problem. We don't want to make it general throughout the building by transferring these airborne spores onto the couch and onto the top of the refrigerator and into the lungs of the occupants. And people who do this well can do it well. It's basically upscale construction work. It's doing good construction work, demolition, with good dust control. The lead-safe work practices are often applicable to mold problems. Often in my reports, I tell people not to even mention the M word. Just remove the water-damaged material using good dust control practices. But using good dust control practices, that's a pretty skilled art when it comes to sealing properly and using exhaust ventilation. It can require the right tools, right experience. How do you find out how good somebody is? It's hard to say because it's an invisible problem often. You know, so how well have they done? Well, you know, do you, do you go to the Better Business Bureau? There's so many people jumping up wanting to be mold cleaners or mold experts because they can do construction work and charge 5,000 times more than they could for just going out and mopping the floor, vacuuming the carpet, whatever. You know, Mac, I know that part of your job involves building science, and I think building science is an evolving science. And would you consider this a, an accurate statement? Do building scientists learn at their client's expense. Learn while you earn. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny how this, these vapor barriers appear to be, uh, uh, you know, in flux and tend to move around. It is funny, isn't it? And the same people that are telling you to do it one way tell you to do it the other way next week, and it's a sort of a shifting field. I think most of us that go out and look at buildings, 
learn from our experience, that's for sure. And the more failures you've seen, the more things done wrong you've seen, the more likely you are to have a good attitude towards doing it right. Now, there was probably somebody that was born beautiful, born rich, born lucky, and everything worked out for them the first time they tried it their whole life. But that's not me or anyone I know. I generally learn by banging my head over and over again until I get sick of it and I learn my way out of it. And that, when it comes to building science, the more screw-ups you see, the more likely you are to know what to do next time. Hopefully it's not your screw-up. <laughs> you see somebody else's, but your own teach you the best. And out of those, what would be the most important lesson you've learned during these numerous building inspections you've done? If you could give us one Oh, it's kind of a, it, 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 it's really more of a Zen thing than anyone else. My buddy Terry Brennan, I think, who said that too, you know, that you, you got, you got to keep an open mind. Listen to what the people are saying. Don't, here's the problem with science and in life in general. We tend to see what we want to see and what we expect to see, and those are called biases. And a good scientific study always wants to eliminate bias to make sure that you don't just come to the conclusion that you want to come to or expect to come to. And if your client is paying you to do something, you're going to tend to want to find out what that client wanted you to find out. You know, the dog licks the hand that packs its dish, and consultants get stuck in that lump, too. You get a building product. Is this a good product or not? Well, you know, people want me to test their building products. You know, you're, you're, you know there's a bias. Of course you want to find out that your client's building product is good. And so you, 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 you formulate a test or a model situation in which the product does well because that makes the client happy. Then they can say, we've tested our product. It works. Well, it works in that model situation. But you could also probably create a model where the product wouldn't work so well. But we tend to avoid doing that if we want to have positive results to make our clients smile. That's a very important bias. And then just seeing things the way you've seen things in the past, it's probably that. I was last week, a very interesting case. I was down in Iowa, and I was looking at an apartment in a below-grade apartment in an all-concrete building. I walked in. The place just stunk. There was visible mold at two locations, on a chair leg and on a closet door. The smell like old tennis shoes, barf, whatever. It was not necessarily just a moldy smell. That was part of it. It stunk, though. And right away I said, well, it's carpet on the concrete. You know, we've got a below-grade apartment here. Well, it turns out the guy's a concrete expert. There's four feet of gravel underneath the concrete slab. It's jacked up three, four feet above grade. He's got foam underneath the concrete. This is not concrete that's prone to being damp, but I just, it's my preconceived notion. If it smells bad in a concrete floor below, you know, bottom floor apartment, it must be wet carpet. Well, the, the father of one of the people who was just hanging around points at the air grills up, on the, up near the ceiling, and he says, what about that? And I unscrew the air grill, and the, the barf smell hit me right in the face. I go and look in the air handler closet, and there the thing is an old, leaky, miserable, you know, one-unit air conditioner, and it's all funky. And then I look at my temperature and relative humidity information that I'd gathered and ignored that told me that it was 68 degrees in there, and the relative humidity was almost 70%. There's something wrong with a building that's air-conditioned that cold that has that high of a humidity. This air conditioner is not drying. There's, it's, it's, what it's doing is it's blowing freezing cold air onto surfaces in a room that's very humid. So we're getting condensation and mold growth. And by God, both of those moldy spots were directly in the high-velocity airflow out of the those ducts. So here's some client that was, I mean, there's some guy that was just kibitzing. <laughs> He's the one who solved the problem. I took the money. <laughs> but I was proud of myself when I left, not because I, I, 
I, I wasn't clinging to that preconceived notion of the carpet. That was what the only thing I could think of, but there was something else there. And you know, where I was sitting at the table taking my notes and analyzing my samples or looking at my stuff, I had a microscope there and all this. It was directly in that vomit smell zone, and that air was blowing right on me. I didn't have a clue. I guess it was blown on the back of my head. So that was a very interesting case. Just you've got to wake up and you've got to always look for something else. Keep an open mind. Do you use standard forms, say, for instance, from the EPA I-beam program when you do your investigations, or do you have your own? Oh, no, I don't have any of that stuff. No, okay. I'm, 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 I'm old-fashioned. I, I started doing this before the EPA guys became experts on this stuff, and they didn't, they didn't come and ask me what forms I used, and I don't ask them. I mean, <laughs> I, I, what, what's, you know, these, all these forms and standard procedures tend to be these experts that have got these certifications from these various groups where they went on an Internet class for a week or they sat and listened to some guy talk, and then they, uh, they have a form and a standard method. You know, you're in trouble with somebody like that, especially these guys that go out on these jobs and they send the samples off to a lab somewhere. How can they look at the stuff and see what's going on? I think if people are going to do these microbiological investigations, if they can't use their own microscope, then they shouldn't be doing microbiological investigations. They can do moisture investigations. An engineer can come out and solve a mold and moisture problem without ever using a microscope or collecting any samples at all. But if you're going to collect samples, you do them yourself. This is a huge industry, this, this, this sampling industry and these labs. The EPA and all these different groups have just quit paying to have mold investigations done because the lab costs are so high. If you can't do your, I could take any one of you guys in my lab for about a week and teach you how to identify 95% of all the molds you're going to find uh, in, in your investigations and how to use your own microscope. And it's, it's a huge cottage industry. That's just my opinion. Don't sue me. You know, I'm, <laughs> I don't participate in the lab certification programs, and I... Uh, I, I, so I'm, I'm probably uh, just – when it comes to environmental stuff, I think you have to keep me in perspective. If you look at the, all of the environmental investigators and mold experts as an aquarium full of fish, there are ones with fine feathery fins, the angelfish with the beautiful stripes. I'm the one that's down underneath the rocks on the bottom sucking muck out of the gravel. One of the bottom feeders, I generally deal with small clients and mostly in my own local area. So I'm not one of the big national experts that's uh, gotten the big Mercedes. I got an old Toyota and put around. I, I think I was more uh, leading toward the fact that by using a standard format, it might keep you from having these preconceived notions. And it, it sounds like you don't agree with that. I don't know. I've always been, you know, when I think of forms, I always think of taxes. <laughs> oh God! It's another test at school. And you know, standard forms probably would work for somebody. Everybody's got their own methods for getting at things. You know, a smart guy once said the most terrifying words in the English language are "I'm from the government and I'm here to, <laughs> and I'm here to help." <laughs> and that was Ronald Reagan. <laughs> yeah, imagine how an Indian on the reservation felt. A white man's here to help me. <laughs> We just killed them all off, helping them. Eh? Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I understand from your bio actually that you actually spent a year on a reservation. How old were you when you did that, Matt? I don't know. I think I was in my 30s or something. I've, 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 I've got a lot. Of, I, I, I'm from Minnesota. There's a lot of Indians here. Yeah, very Some of them are my, fr my friends. I, they live out in the woods, which is lucky. I like to spend time out of doors. Very interesting. Let me let me ask you a question about, um, or I'd like to know your opinion really of the health risks 
of fungi versus the health risks of bacteria such as E. coli, Pseudomonas, MRSA. I got started doing this mold investigating coming out of graduate school in environmental health. I went to a friend of mine, a hospital environmentalist, to get a project to do to get my degree. And the project he engaged me in was to test various filters for scrubbing mold out of the air, which is a vital concern in a hospital environment when you have environmentally comp- or immune-compromised patients. Mold can actually grow in their lungs, particularly warm, temperature-loving molds like Aspergillus fumigatus, Aspergillus flavus, can actually colonize their lungs, producing a virtually incurable pneumonia. And, you know, how do you clean bleach off of some, mold off of something? Bleach? You know, you can't bleach somebody's lungs. So this was a vital health concern to this very small subset of the population. Now when you see these boilerplate things, lectures on mold that are included in these mold reports, they call some fungi infectious. Only a small subset of the population has to worry about that, whereas anthrax, bacteria can colonize anybody. You know, these bacterial colonizers, that's what infectious diseases, bacterially related infectious diseases are, is they're inappropriate bacteria colonizing our body. I have 15,000 bacteria, 15 trillion bacteria on my skin, trillions in my body. Only about 2, 3% of them have been identified because we can't identify bacteria by how they look. We have to culture them on various media to distinguish one from another. And we've only managed to do that using DNA analysis. They figured out that about 95% of them are strangers to us. We don't really know what they do. Legionella wasn't a well-known bacterium until it made people sick. Then they started culturing it out of the lungs of the people and finding out what it was, finds out it's common soil bacteria, grows in algae particles in the soil. And, you know, so these infectious bacteria, they're dangerous, real dangerous to people. Disease can spread. Mold disease doesn't spread from person to person, and a moldy environment will affect some people much more than it will affect others. Like, for instance, that place where I had that horrible dirt breath air conditioner blowing on me for several hours as I sat in the building. You know, maybe a beer, and I'm cured. You know, a little, cut, a little catch in my throat. Somebody else would be having headaches or skin-crawling rash for weeks. I'm not affected by it. I go, you know, it's just the nastiest environments don't seem to do me much harm. Maybe I'm already damaged. But some people are uh, some people are violently affected by this stuff, and a lot of times that's why they call me. My building's making me sick, and I can't see anything. I go out there and find there is a mold problem. By golly, they're the only one that's bothered. Their husband isn't. The kids aren't. Just a sensitive person. Mold's different. It's like it's, most people who are affected by mold, it's just the allergic reactions. Like, you know, if you've got cat allergies, don't have a cat. See what I'm saying? And mold it. allergies don't live in a moldy home. Right. Is it true you were present when a new genus of mold was discovered called HLS? And could you tell me about that experience? One of my favorite building investigations <laughs> I ever got to go on. Big high-rise skyscraper in the middle of midtown Manhattan on a beautiful fall day. You can walk out on the parapets on the 50th floor. The construction parapets are, you walk right outdoors, 50 stories up. Look in the windows, just like the top canopy of the Amazon rainforest. Looking in the windows and see people on exercise machines and stuff, hundreds of feet in the air. Beautiful day. They had a, What they had was they had a leaky elevator shaft from the top to the bottom. They'd installed all this green-treated sheetrock I don't know if it was sheetrock, but a gypsum, paper-faced gypsum product from 50 stories worth that had been leaking in the elevator shaft. And so the elevator shaft was covered with mold, and everyone was upset about it. And there were investigators all through the building from all these different companies, many of them much more famous than me and my buddy, being Cliff here who we're talking to. <laughs> he brought me in on it. And what do you do with a building where you've got all that moldy sheetrock strapped in with all of that elevator fixtures over it, 
you know, the thing is, the thing about the gypsum face, paper face gypsum products is they're wonderful fireproofing. So they're a good thing to put in an elevator shaft. They meet all the fire code, but they don't meet the moisture code. And the water dripping uh, was wetting the elevator shaft. And when we went to the, the kind of a summary meeting, the guy who was running the job, he was a sharp guy. And he looks around at me and Cliff and he says, have you been to the basement? And we said, no. And he says, I said, why should we go to the basement? He says, well, that's where the mold's really bad. And I said, what do you mean by bad? And he says, you know, that black and orange Halloween-looking shit. <laughs> so Cliff and I went down to the basement, and by God, it was black and it was orange, and it looked just like a Halloween pumpkin. And I, we put a label on it, HLS, and took pictures of that, and Cliff and I show that stuff all over the country. <laughs> it actually illustrates a, it illustrates a serious point, though, that these microorganisms can form sort of films, and the more wet opportunity they get, the more they sort of form a team. And these biofilm formation is a very interesting phenomenon in nature that we're just starting to explore now, whether it's a surgically implanted device in a body that gets a bacterial biofilm, or some of these building biofilms, they can become much more difficult to, uh, to eradicate. But that's HLS anyway, boys. Mac, it has been tremendous having you. We have a few minutes left. I wanted to check and see if uh, Dr. Wild Dietrich, do you have anything you'd like to add or ask Mac while we have him here? Uh, uh, what does what was HLS? What does it stand? Should I ask? Halloween-looking stuff. <laughs> okay, I, that's not what he said, but that's what I'll say. No. Oh, all right. Yeah, I was afraid of something like that. Now all of our viewers will be in on the joke. Um, HLS uh, yeah. is Halloween-looking stuff. Uh, stuff. Right. Right. We'll, we'll use stuff since we're rated A, I think, which is for anybody. I know I know another <laughs> word that starts with S, too. It could be substituted easily. Right, don't, they, don't they fine you hundreds of thousands of dollars for saying stuff like that on the air? I no, mean, no, no. I've got to say, this, internet, this, this kind of on-the-air stuff is so exciting. Just think if we stepped it up a ramp, ramped it up a step and we had ourselves on screen. I'd have to wear a shirt, but other than that, <laughs> it'd be TV conferencing, like this, I think it's, and radio conferencing, it's such an exciting thing. I really enjoyed listening to last week's show. You had real knowledgeable experts on there. I think this is a, a great opportunity. I appreciate you having me yeah, on. We're having fun doing it. Before we let you go, Mac, is there anything we missed? Is there anything you'd like to add? I think that we really have to start turning back from our miraculous inventions and looking at how nature has designed the pre-existing world, if you will, as if we weren't a part of it. We need to start getting with the program. We're running other creatures right off the planet and potentially running ourselves off by not paying attention to the quote-unquote rules of nature. And I'd like to see us uh, making more naturally integrated building designs and lifestyles. That's probably the most important thing I could think of for my children and potential grandchildren to have a good life to live like we have on a beautiful blue planet in the middle of space. Mac, it was our pleasure having you on, and we'd like to have you back again sometime. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, and uh, we do have it in the pipeline that you may have to put a shirt on one of these days when you're on the uh, on the show here, Mac. So uh, we're working on that. Okay. Thanks for having. Uh, thanks for being with us, and uh, hope to see you again soon. I know. Take care. Okay. Okay. I believe we have our our second guest on the phone. Uh, Mike Green, are you out there? Yes, I am. Good. How are you? Morning, afternoon, Mike. We're great, thank you. Let me do a quick introduction. Uh, Michael Green is an attorney with um, Ackerman Centerfit in uh, Florida. They're a very large uh, real, uh, attorney uh, firm that uh, deals with property and construction law since 1981. He works um, 
with development, construction, finance, law, represents developers, builders, owners, home builders, lenders, government agencies, contractors, and design professionals. Um, Michael has also had significant experience in resolving problems associated with indoor environmental contamination, including microbial contamination, chemical contamination, and related issues. And he has uh, served on the board of directors of the Indoor Air Quality Association and has uh, taught numerous courses uh, or assisted in teaching numerous courses and assisting people who are learning more about the indoor environment to uh, understand a little bit more about the legal issues. So welcome to the show, Mike. And uh, Thank you for having me. Uh, our pleasure. I, I, wanted to I am wearing a shirt. You are wearing a shirt. That's uh, that's good. I I assume you probably have a tie on as well. Uh, not today. Casual Friday. I take advantage of every time I can. Uh, great, great. Well, I'm going to turn over the questions for just a moment to my co-host Cliff here. And Cliff, yeah. Good morning, Mike. I just came back from I just came back from a conference, and I was talking to the son of a good friend of mine, and he's been a long-term building and restoration contractor. And he made a very interesting statement to me. And what he said was, in the United States, when something goes wrong with a building, the owner hires 20 attorneys to get him out of trouble. In Europe or Japan, when something goes wrong with a building, the owner hires 20 engineers to fix the problem and prevent it from happening again. Any comments on that? Uh, and that's absolutely true. <laughs> part, part of it has to do with just the nature of the United States system versus Japan and Europe. Uh, in Europe, um, they, especially in some of the countries that um, uh, France, Belgium, and some of the other uh, so-called romance nations um, often solve some of these prod problems with upfront insurance. And I apologize if my voice is going. I've had this bug for about three days, um, uh, which is commonly known as decennial insurance decennial meaning 10 years. Um, it's also common in many Middle Eastern countries, in part those that were under French occupation at one time in the past. And what that insurance provides is it's essentially a sort of a cross between builder's risk, um, a bond, and a warranty insurance all wrapped up into one. Um, the insurance companies have their own engineers, their own people look at the plans, uh, analyze it, and then ensure everybody on the job site. It's uh, similar to what's used in the United States on, on large projects called owner-controlled insurance, where everybody's under one massive policy. By doing that, if everybody's got the same insurance company, the likelihood of litigation goes down because insurance is going to pay for everything. Um, and that's one reason in Europe, um, uh, there is less litigation over building construction in Japan. Um, having dealt with uh, Japanese developers and banks uh, back in the 90s when they were big here before they had economic problems, um, uh, Japan sort of works on the principle of who's ever got the greatest economic upper hand at the time wins. So instead of lawyers doing the battling, it's accountants doing the battling. Um, and it's more of a kind of a uh, an, an approach um, reminiscent of the early part of the last century in the United States where who's ever got the most gold wins. What types of uh, 
trends are you seeing within the indoor air quality litigation arena? Is it um, all still mold? Are we seeing other types of indoor air quality issues being litigated, or do you see it going more toward the uh, building construction side of things? Um, it, it's uh, sort of a combination of all of those things. Um, uh, for those who've attended any of my lectures, I always try to make sure that uh, particularly the indoor environmental professionals know when they go into a project, it's not just mold. They need to make sure they're looking for other things, whether it's bacterial, CO2, or chemical issues that may be causing problems. Um, but the litigation, um, one, it, it is uh, spread, no pun intended, from the uh, primarily what was a residential arena. It's now in commercial buildings, shopping centers, tenants using it as a means to get out of leases, office buildings. Um, uh, since there's been so much construction uh, over the past several years, um, when you're spreading your subcontractors and contractors thin, the quality is bound to go down. There seem to be more leaks than I've ever seen in buildings at any given time, compounded by hurricanes and other adverse uh, weather problems of late. And uh, so we're seeing the, uh, the mold issue spread to uh, beyond the residential area where it really started as a litigation issue. Do you see people also trying to bring in the, the bacteria issue when you have these moisture problems? Don't we also have bacteria issues at the same time? Why are we just focused on mold? Um, I, I think it's because mold got so much publicity um, and uh, having been on the IQA board for, for nine years, um, we've seen that people are sitting in that focus. They, uh, it, It's um, something new. Even the medical profession has, has um, uh, been behind the curve, so it was actually a place where people with building experience could get ahead of the curve. Bacteria, for a long time, had been the province of just the doctors, staph infections, E. coli. Um, but generally, if you've got water with a mold problem, there's a significant risk of bacteria. Uh, we have seen a couple of cases in the past year and a half of Legionella in hotels. Um, and Legionella, I'd much rather... Um, deal with a mold problem if I have a hotel than dealing with Legionella because Legionella um, uh, is clearly pathogenic, particularly for people with immune suppressing conditions, um, people with um, older people, and in some of these cases, people have actually died. Um, and if you only focus on one thing, if you think you've got a mold problem but people are being made ill, you ignore uh, Legionella and the bacterial problems at your peril. And if you're not experienced in dealing with spotting those or recognizing that I know mold but don't know bacteria and bringing in the right people, you, you yourself could end up on the uh, other side of a lawsuit. I have had people in the industry recently tell me that things are slowing down, that um, you know there isn't as much work as there was, and that we don't have as much need for new people to get involved in this um, indoor environmental quality business. Do you see that in your practice? Are you seeing a slowdown in the litigation, or is it increasing, staying the same? Um, litigation, I think, is actually increasing again. It sort of goes in cycles. Um, uh, usually if somebody um, creates a new cutting-edge uh, theory in that uh, 
most recently we saw in the uh, Gorman case that was settled out in California several months ago um, that re-energizes the plaintiff's lawyers and um, uh, those uh, representing ill individuals. Um, and also the hurricanes actually, uh, while they generate a lot of work for people in the remediation and testing business, obviously once the work starts, that slows down some. Um, but the litigation takes a while before it actually hits. And we've still got cases going on literally from the 2004 hurricanes here in Florida where insurance companies haven't paid, they've been stalling, contractors haven't been paid. Um, and so that work can continue for years after the initial event. And if there's another weather event, it will happen again. Uh, just the other day I was watching the news and an apartment building down in Miami-Dade County the entire building had to be evacuated. People moved out because the uh, uh, roof structure near collapsed. The entire building filled with water. Um, I'm sure now, being it was an affordable housing project, is now filled with mold. And um, as long as um, there are uh, poor construction and adverse weather, there will still be mold problems. And there's always a need for people in the industry who are good, who are skilled at what they do. Um, uh, that demand won't go away. There will always be a demand for people who are good at what they do. Can, can you go into a little more detail about the case in California you mentioned and what new case. door that opened? Yes, the Gorman case was one of those cases where as a lawyer you in part scratch your head as to where did this come from, <laughs> um, but resulted from a claim by the Gorman family who uh, sued their home builder, the lumber company had supplied the lumber for the house and other subs. Um, the gist of their claim was that uh, one of their children developed autism as a result of exposure to mold in the house. Um, the case did not go to trial, but there was a settlement which was widely publicized in which the Gormans uh, settled their case for a total of $22.6 million approximately 13 million of which came from the lumber company. Um, from a lawyer's perspective, and we all know that there's certain health issues um, associated with mold that are absolutely scientifically proven. There's no doubt about the allergen effect, the fact that mold can be an asthma trigger, and that for um, certain people, uh, mold such as uh, aspergillus can be a pathogen, can literally kill them if they have immune system problems. The uh, issue uh, of autism is tied to the anecdotal claims of neurological problems. In fact, that was first raised in the Ballard case uh, from about five years ago. Uh, but this is the first one I'm aware of where a, a link between autism has been alleged. The, the hard part from that case from a lawyer's perspective to understand is that um, medical evidence is scientific evidence. To get scientific evidence in court, it has to meet a certain standard, and I'm going to highly paraphrase what the standard is, but generally it must be, commonly, it must be a theory commonly accepted in the scientific community, meaning it's gone through uh, appropriate scientific method testing to show there is a link. Da is that uh, what they would call Daubert? That, that's the, okay. In some states it's the Daubert case uh, rule that's followed. In some other, cases, other states like Florida, we follow the Fry case, F-R-Y-E, okay. which is similar. Um, and uh, we, uh, the judge acts sort of as the gatekeeper to decide whether the science is there or not. Um, 
uh, right now, I would say there really isn't enough science to show a link with autism, and there's still developing science on the neurological side in general. So um, one of the mysteries to us is why the home builder and lumber company would settle for such a large amount. And two, why, why didn't they get a confidentiality agreement? It would certainly for a client who's going to settle something, we wouldn't want it advertised that they're writing checks to people uh, because that then makes them a bigger target. But um, as a result of them not doing that, we're now aware of uh, this case. So while not a legal precedent since it wasn't a judgment awarded, but a settlement, it has created, uh, in effect, a uh, a claim precedent that people see that you can make this kind of claim. The personal injury lawyers see that this claim may have some validity, at least to sustain it for a settlement. And so uh, a lot of lawyers have been re-energized by the health claims again. Uh, Mike, you introduced a term that I – and I just want to be sure that I wrote it down right – owner-controlled insurance. Yes. And what I'm wondering is whether or not that could be a solution to the following problem, which I'm going to outline for you. And the problem is what indoor air quality challenges exist when a commercial building is sold, and what can the buyer reasonably expect the seller to do in regard to testing – cleaning and remediation, and would using something like this owner-controlled insurance be the mechanism to get everyone on the same page and uh, resolve this, the potential issues? The, the owner-controlled insurance is primarily used for construction of a project. It's okay. also sometimes called a uh, wrap-up. Um, the problem with it is there's two benefits to um, the owner-controlled insurance program, or a wrap-up, as I'll call it. Uh, one, and the, the best reason is it cuts down litigation long run because if the owner, the contractor, and all the major subs are under the same policy, uh, instead of suing each other, everybody makes an insurance claim. There's no subrogation claims. Everybody goes away happy. Um, the other benefit is that when you reach a certain dollar amount for a project, the rule of thumb at a minimum has been, say, a 40 or $50 million project, a pretty big office building, a government project, before it become, makes economic sense because at that rate you actually save premium because by, you're essentially buying in bulk. So instead of everybody buying their own policy for the job, those projects are taken out of their own insurance, the general liability is taken out, and um, so you can save money. Um, on complex projects, even if they're less, it's still worth it from a liability uh, avoidance problem. Um, I'm not aware of a product that would work in an existing building buying and selling that would cut out that liability. Um, in uh, commercial buildings, uh, unlike in residential where there, there has developed a line of cases that say a seller must disclose certain conditions such as mold, um, that doesn't really exist. In commercial, it's still buyer beware in commercial. But typically what's being negotiated is um, buyers want to do a mold analysis. They want to know um, uh, what's out there. They want to know if there's been a problem. So there's been much more active negotiation on these building environmental issues, just like there's been on things like underground storage tanks, uh, super send, super fund sites, um, and the let's call them the outdoor environmental, for lack of a better term, 
um, over the years that has moved into the negotiation process um, on commercial buildings now at the same level. Banks really haven't started requiring that yet, but that's just a matter of time. Um, the, uh, so it's really still become a matter of negotiation on commercial. Um, really the best way for insurance to work is to look at microbial insurance coverage, um, having that in place at the time of doing the building and doing an analysis when you buy it to eliminate things that may be there. Um, and instead of just using environmental professionals when a problem exists, but to um, identify problems before they may exist, before you bite the bullet, um, makes a lot of sense. And um, unfortunately, while it's uh, advancing as a common thread, um, it's still, I would say, the minority of time that people are uh, using environmental professionals on a preventative basis, and that to me uh, makes a lot of sense. It reminds me of those old uh, Fram oil filter commercials. You can pay me now or you can pay me later. Right. Yes. You're much better paying to do the proper job with an environmental professional before you get in, while you're building the building. Cut out the risk before it becomes a lawsuit. And now with the sale of existing buildings, we've seen for a long time now people do these phase one environmental site assessments, and now I've seen that ASTM has a standard for, for uh, I believe it's for determining if there's been water damage and the potential for microbial issues as the result of that. Um, are you seeing any of that being done with your clients? Are you recommending your clients have that done? We recommend... Um both a preventative and uh, even with the ASTM standard, my advice is if you, you hire a good professional to look at your building, look at all the issues, particularly if you have a, a building with systems that may present some risk of Legionella, especially if you're buying a hotel where it's more common than other places, um, you're gonna, you should be doing that review. Um, and we typically recommend certain minimum inspection things that our clients should do. We've also been making those same recommendations for quite some time on uh, construction. And we've gotten uh, several projects where we've put in um, what I call a WIP, or Water Intrusion Program. We, a lot of people don't like to hear um, the M word. And people believe mold is a four-letter word. Um, and so we focus it on the water intrusion and control during construction. Um, one, you eliminate some of those issues, including the one that uh, arose during the Gorman case where the uh, uh, mold was alleged to have existed already on the lumber when it was put into the houses where the lumber company wrote its $13 million check from. Um, you solve problems during the project. You're looking at drying a little more closely. So you know that when the keys get handed over on the building, whether it's a single-family house or an office tower, <clears throat> that the likelihood of a problem that will lead to mold or has led to mold at that time has been taken care of. And uh, it, uh, initially we, there was resistance from contractors in doing that, but um, there seems to be a much greater buy-in by both developers and contractors that if you solve a problem earlier, it is much cheaper for everybody than fighting about it and ripping things out later. Um, insurance companies haven't quite gotten on board yet, and we're finding that uh, uh, many insurance companies are telling contractors that their liability policies will not cover 
this moisture intrusion control program and the responsibility for it. So that has created some issues because the insurance companies are, um, if I can say it, usually ahead of the curve on uh, limiting uh, claims, but behind the curve and finding creative ways of insuring things that really reduce the claims in the long run. And um, uh, uh, that, uh, to me, makes sense if uh, you can have professionals who, instead of just solving a problem, can prevent them. One, that's obviously good work for professionals, uh, but it also uh, uh, means that uh, we'll have better buildings, we'll have less problems, and the health of the average American will be better because where they live and work will have been looked at far more closely than in the past. I know you typically represent uh, the the building owners, uh, but I'm, I'm curious, is there anything or any type of advice that you would give to consumers who are listening to our show? Because we do actually get quite a few consumers. Uh, sure, what types of things? As long as there's no conflict, we rep we've represent building owners and landlords, developers, contractors, a lot of people in the environmental industry themselves. Um, and we also have represented homeowners where there's not a conflict. Um, generally, we don't do the contingency fee if there's just a health issue, if there's somebody who's a renter in an apartment. That's not our upper alley, but we've got quite a few people who've bought um, expensive condos or houses, and they're uh, finding that uh, their million-dollar house really isn't built any better than the $100,000 house down the street. It's just bigger with nicer finishes. Um, so the the... Uh, some of the things I can recommend is, one, if you're negotiating to have something built for you or purchasing uh, a property, whether it's a house or a condo, um, you want to make sure you've preserved your right to do an environmental inspection as well as your typical structural, plumbing, uh, electrical inspection, because most of the standard forms that the brokers use don't provide for a mold or environmental inspection. You have to add that to the contract. Um, two, you want to make sure um, you hire somebody who is skilled to do that. Um, there are many home inspectors out there. And I, there are some who are, have been properly trained and certified to do mold investigation, whether through the IQA or the American Indoor Air Quality Council. Uh, but from what we see, the vast majority are not, yet will attempt to do a mold test. They'll do one spore trap and tell people it's clean but they really don't have enough knowledge to protect a, uh, uh, a homeowner. So if you're going to hire somebody to do the physical inspection, you want to make sure that person is indeed qualified to do an environmental inspection for mold, bacteria, et cetera, uh, and for the uh, 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 water intrusion uh, issues. Um, and uh, uh, in most states, including Florida, home inspectors are not required to be licensed. So you really need to uh, look at references and referrals when you do that analysis. Uh, again, it's better to find out during your inspection period if there's too many problems you can get out of it, uh, or if it's manageable, at least you know what the cost is to fix it, and it can be addressed before you close. So from a, a buyer's perspective, somebody having a house built, um, those are important things that often uh, will have people doesn't matter what price house or condo they're buying, come to us with an already signed contract, has discovered that there's a mold problem, their inspection period's expired, and there is not much that can be done at that point in time unless we can show it was hidden, the seller knew about it, 
and we have um, uh, ability to argue case law that the seller should have disclosed it. That's really not the best way to go. One, it's a lot more expensive to fight a battle like that than to have the appropriate protections in your contract. What about people that are already living in in a home? I, I you know, they're in a home, or they're renting, or they're maybe living in a public housing, and they have a problem. Um, I'm familiar with one website. I'm curious if you may have other recommendations. Are you familiar with the Policyholders of America website, and can you give us some thoughts on their website? Sure. Melinda Ballard's um, website, um, uh, as I mentioned the Ballard case earlier, sort of uh, the Stephen and Melinda Ballard really were the um, the catalyst for uh, the attention finally being paid to the uh, mold health issues and building issues over the past five, six years. And um, their problems sprung from issues with their insurance company, uh, resulting in their lawsuit and uh, uh, a recovery initially of $32 million, which was subsequently reduced by the court to approximately $4 million and change. Um, Melinda, in order to um, uh, make sure that other consumers were aware of these issues, particularly dealing with insurance companies, started uh, the Policyholders of America. It's a very good website. One uh, for, you know, it's, it sort of covers the broad base of the country, so it doesn't always help in each state that a consumer may be in, but also provides links on um, how to get information, where to go next, um, and looking at their insurance and looking at their state legislators on uh, um, how do you um, uh, protect yourself when you've got a problem and Nobody seems to be helping, including your insurance company. So that policyholdersofamerica.org site does seem to be one that's helpful for some yeah. people. Uh, I think it's very good because at least you have a place to start from. Uh, you have basic information. Um, uh, and uh, the other one I think is also the iaqa.org where there's a lot of uh, basic information. There's lists of uh, environmental consultants who are – have been certified by the programs, and there's also links to other information that may be helpful. A lot of people try to go to the EPA's website, and there is some good information there, but a lot of it is not in a form easily digested or applied to your own property. It's it's hard to take uh, any of the government websites and turn it into something that you can use as a consumer. Michael, in your opinion, what's the most ridiculous indoor air quality or mold case you are familiar with? Uh, well, we've seen um, uh, cases, and um, I'll bring – actually, the, the probably one of the most ridiculous ones is actually one that I didn't personally see, but uh, for those who attended the Indoor Air Quality Association's annual meetings in the past know that myself and that uh, two other lawyers, Mike Bowden from Texas and Dave Governor from Boston, have uh, done some mock trials and helping to educate people in the industry. And one of Mike Bowden's cases, um, um, an alleged expert in um, uh, environmental remediation, um, had apparently hung um, uh, rolled up sweat socks, used worn sweat socks uh, in various places in a moldy house under the theory that the sweat socks um, apparently absorbed the mold, 
Um, the the actual testing didn't bear that out, um, and uh, uh, there's definitely no scientific evidence that would get past either the Darbert or Fry cases standards that uh, you can use sweat socks to solve a mold problem. Um, I think most of the other cases that we see um, that I would call foolish cases where both sides can't agree on solving a problem or one side, say, the landlord or a, a seller of a house or a builder of a building uh, refuses to recognize that um, uh, they may have some responsibility for it. Uh, mold like um, uh, cheap wine doesn't get better with age, and that if you can work something out, it's always better to solve a problem, settle it, rather than um, end up in two or three years of litigation. Um, and so I would say most cases uh, like that, it's uh, it's the foolish nature of people not wanting to recognize that mold can be an issue, or on the other side, people who um, may over-exaggerate the condition and maybe a little bit mold, a mold growing from a window leak, and suddenly it's magnified into a multi-million dollar health issue that doesn't really have the evidence to back it up. Um, and that's why well, the other reason why there are so many lawsuits and so many lawyers dealing with these types of problems is people... Uh, uh, if people recognize the true reality that there are issues, um, that they but they can be managed, um, we could settle most of the claims versus ending up in lawsuits. Before we let you go, Mike, is there anything that we missed or that you would like to add? Um, like uh, I always want to reiterate that you know it's not just mold. Um, as uh, for environmental professionals, they need to make sure that if it's something that is not immediately recognizable or if it's not in their skill set, they need to make sure they bring in the right sub-consultants to look at it. If people are being made ill in a hotel, it may not be mold, and they need to be cognizant of Legionella and other conditions that may be an issue. Um, if um, uh, you are a builder of buildings. It makes a lot of sense these days to uh, build in your agreements not only protections but systems to be put into place to remove the likelihood of water intrusion. Make sure your windows don't leak. Um, if you're a consumer of property, whether on the commercial side or on the residential side, um, making sure you protect yourself um, before um, an event happens before you make a mistake, um, uh, does count, don't count on the title company or the broker to help you, that's not their jobs um, in uh, buying a piece of property. You want counsel who is skilled both in the, uh, not just the real estate aspects, but can help you with the construction and environmental issues. Very good. Uh, Dr. Wow, are you still on the line out I'm, there? Yes, I was listening. I couldn't contribute very much. Uh, Anything you'd like to add or any questions uh, you have? No, it's, it certainly is. A, I always learn something. Uh, so if a, uh, a lawsuit gets settled, you can't use any of the proceedings as a precedent. Um, if there is no action by the court, it doesn't uh, set, create a precedential effect. It's a private agreement among the, the uh, That's parties. Interesting. That's interesting. So it doesn't become evidence in other case, yep. but clearly sets in effect this, this business um, uh, precedent where if 
lumber companies start writing checks because there's mold on lumber, lumber companies are going to get sued more. Yeah. And that's just the nature of the way litigation works. If you've got a target who's going to pay for a claim, um, then there's going to be more claims. That's one of the reasons that some companies like uh, Disney, for example, fight every lawsuit to make uh, let the lawyers know that it's not going to be easy yep, right. uh, to prove a case that may not be valid. Yep. Interesting. Thank you very much, Mike, and we appreciate you switching spots today and joining us here at IAQ Radio and hope to have you back again down the road. We'll be here every Friday at noon. I would be happy to, and if people want to call for more information, I I guess the information will be on your website. Well, actually, could you give it to us? I should have asked before, and I appreciate you bringing that up. Sure. The, the best way is probably by email. Um, my email address is michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, dot green, G-R-E-E-N-E, can't forget that little extra E on the end, at Ackerman, A-K-E-R, M-A-N dot com. And also, if they go to uh, um and search my name, there'll be uh, a lot of the articles that we've written on everything from uh, Legionella issues to uh, uh, for those in the uh, testing side of the business, how to use uh, your digital camera as uh, make sure you properly preserve evidence in these days of Photoshop. Um, and... Uh, there's uh, information that may be helpful to them. Excellent. Well, thanks once again for joining us, Mike, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I look forward to it. And I'm sorry, we lost we lost you there for just a minute, oh, Mike. <laughs> uh, yes, I, and I was just saying that I look forward to uh, participating and uh, helping those out there uh, protect their health issues. Um, uh, the uh, Happy to help, and hope everybody has a good and dry weekend, particularly inside their houses this weekend. I hope you get over that little flu bug or whatever it is. I think I have a bit of the same. So. Yes, I got it the uh, the other day, and I'm finally able to have my voice back, luckily enough, for our uh, for our show today. Great. Thanks again, Mike, and have, have a great weekend. Thank you, everybody out there, too. Have a great weekend. Okay. Bye-bye. Cliff, I understand you wanted to... Yeah, Joe, this week uh, I've got a what's wrong with this picture segment, and I really call it the Tyvek effect. OSHA requires proper worker protection, not overprotection. Working in a hot environment is stressful. When working on projects that require personal protective equipment, or PPE, the risk of heat stress rises. Did you know that over 4,000 Americans die from heat stress every year? I'd like the listeners to consider that the threat posed by the heat is often greater than the threat posed by the mold. And again, OSHA wants proper protection, not overprotection. Thank you for that, Cliff. That that's actually something we discuss in our classes. And I'm I'm curious if uh, Dr. Weil, since you're the certified industrial hygienist and the uh, you know the safety uh, expert in the group here, would you have anything you'd like to add? Oh, absolutely. That uh, I have been preaching that. I learned, I learned from the masters of heat stress, um, uh, Woody Belding and uh, Ted Hatch. They were the first ones to 
have you know, engineering methodology to measure it and to make sure that there wasn't any heat stress. In fact, they used volunteers. They were called army recruits. So they had uh, a lot of volunteers there. I taught the subject, and I remember I mentioned it in my lectures and, and training courses when I started teaching asbestos courses in, what, something like 1984 or 85. And I remember I had a couple of guys in my classes, and uh, they said, yeah, we removed uh, asbestos-containing materials from live steam lines. And I said, all of a sudden, that, that, that white wall turned yellow, and then it turned to red, and then I saw colors and blue, and my body passed out. And I said, was that carbon monoxide? And I said, no, my friend, that was heat stress. And he said, boy, I, I, I'm in pretty good shape. Had nothing to do with this. You've got to be very careful. And that can hit you over the head, I mean, out of nowhere. So there are gadgets, there are measurements for heat stress available. And um, if uh, yeah, right now here in the Pittsburgh and the Pennsylvania area, this time of the year, eh, there is not that much of a problem. But if you are down in the south and have this, are maybe overprotective, uh, uh, overprotective uh, clothing, and you have a respirator on, and maybe a heart head on, and maybe gloves on, uh, uh, that will contribute to a severe heat stress where fainting can yeah, easily happen. So you got to watch out for that. And there are some government uh, guidelines for oh, yes. avoiding that. And what I would like to do is remind our listeners, and I will work with our IT guy here, Cyber Jockey, to uh, add a few of those to the links on the iaqtraining.com website. Um, you can also contact us if you have any questions about the show at info at iaqtraining.com. We are now approved for certification renewal credits for the American Indoor Air Quality Council. We're working with some other associations to uh, get continuing education approval for the show. And before we go, I would like to thank one more time our sponsors for today's show, John Don Products, where remediation and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com and Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry at ieconnections.com. And today's trivia question, of course, was brought to us by Microband Systems, the microbial management company. Thanks again for joining us, Dr. Weil. Thanks to all of our guests. And uh, we'll see you all next week. Cliff? Next week. Thank you. Have uh, Have a good weekend, everyone. Okay, same here. Okay, Dieter, take care. No problem at all.